0: what is the most
1: versatile cartridge? That is a good question. And wow, I think the absolute answer on that one is. Hello everyone, Ron Spomer, once again, back at you from Ron Spomer Outdoor Podcasts. We've got more interesting questions from you listeners and a couple of corrections. Not as many as usual, so I must be getting a few things right. But here's a good scientific one. This goes to physics. Always a little bit complicated, but that's a big part of what shooting is. Now, this is a correction on Coriolis effect. I hope. LeBorn is uh, trying to set me straight. I think I got a little bit wrong, or he suggests that I described it a little bit off base in a previous podcast about what is this Coriolis effect. So this is what he says. The law of inertia shows that the way he explains it, I think meaning me, how I explained, is incorrect. There would be no difference shooting east and west and vice versa. I'll pick a bone on you with that one a little bit here. Where you will see the effect is when you're shooting north and south. There's where you see the Coriolis effect according to LeBourne. What causes the effect is the difference in rotation speed between objects that lie on a different longitude. Ah, uh, longitudinal plane. I'm not sure if that's right or if it's latitude. At any rate, for example, the Earth spins faster at the equator than it does in Canada. Right. Got that. There's no difference in speed between the two different points on the equator, east and west, Right, and the atmosphere is spinning with the planet at a near equal speed. I'm not sure on that one. The atmosphere is free, so I don't know why it would have to be going the same speed as the Earth. Winds change speeds all the time. I don't know. Um, So unfortunately, the example that Ron gave is not correct, though I could see how you would make that mistake. Yeah, And I may just make it again, <laughs> but I'm trying to figure all this out. Now, I do know that the Coriolis effect is real. I don't think we need to worry about it. Um, everything I've read on it in the different ballistic calculators and things say that it just doesn't amount to much until a thousand yards or more. But I think you're absolutely on the right track with a north and south effect. And you've got the earth spinning at different speeds. At the equator, it's a little over a thousand miles per hour but it's nowhere close to that at the North Pole. And I think you can, well, if, think about a merry-go-round. If you're, if you're on a merry-go-round and it's spinning very quickly, if you're near the center of it, right at the axis, it's not going very fast. You get out to the edge and it's going fast and it wants to throw you off. And we're going to pull that throw you off thing into some variation or part of the Coriolis effect that does make a difference east and west. And I think it's more correctly known as the Ertvoss effect, if I've got that right, it's E O S T E O E O T V O S. It's a Norwegian word, and I think it was the last name of the man who discovered it back in the 18th or 19th century. But I can explain that one pretty well from the research I've done on this Ertvoss effect. And it's like this, back to the merry-go-round. It wants to throw you off. Think of the earth as the merry-go-round. The equator's spinning around. If you were on the equator, it wants to throw you off, just like a merry-go-round would. If you shoot a bullet to the east, that centrifugal force spinning it wants to throw it up. So you're gonna be a little bit high if you shoot that direction. Some folks say also the target over here on the curve of the earth is going to fall away with the spin of the Earth while your bullet is free of the Earth, flying in space, in the air, and dropping down. Therefore, the bullet's going to land higher on the target. The target's dropping away from the bullet. So which one it is, I'm not exactly sure. Probably both of them. You know, the centrifugal force is throwing it up. Now go the opposite direction to the west, and you should strike low because either the target's climbing up as your bullet's getting there, It's going to be a little bit higher than the bullet lands, or it's just the opposite of the centrifugal force. It's going in the opposite direction. That's that part for the east and west. North and south, Coriolis effect, inch or two, Or three at a thousand yards. I don't know. But the experts, these long range, extreme range shooters say they generally don't need to worry about it unless it's a really small target that they're playing around with and trying to hit. But in general, they worry way more about wind and uh, the differences in the wind for blowing their bullets than the, uh, than this force from Coriolis. Um, but generally it spins your bullets to the right in the Northern hemisphere. I think when you're shooting north or any degree off that to the north a little bit, you get kind of a right drift or spin from this Coriolis effect, however it works. I'm not a physicist, don't fully understand it. I think the important thing is for anyone interested in it is let this be the stimulation to get you to do your own research. Because whenever I research this, I'll either find someone like me trying to explain it who doesn't quite get it pulled off, or I read a scientific paper and it just, it's a fog, man. They've got all these calculations and numbers and formulas and and none of it makes any sense. And I struggle to try to figure it all out. So go dive in for yourselves if you want to figure it out. If you don't want to worry about it, don't try to hit small targets at a thousand yards. And <laughs> You'll be just fine. So thanks for those corrections on Coriolis Effect LeBorn. I hope either you're right or are, I am right or our listeners will find a source that explains it a little more accurately than either one of us did. All right, here's a, a question that's a little more down to earth <laughs> from Joseph. And he asks, what is the most versatile cartridge? Most versatile cartridge. That is a good question. And I guess it would mean what can, how many different things could you use it for effectively? And Wow. I think the absolute answer on that one is a 12-gauge shotgun as far as pretty much able to do anything and everything because with a shotgun you can shoot birdshot buckshot and single slugs so you roughly have a scatter gun for moving targets and small game and you also have a big slug for taking big game much like a rifle if the barrel isn't rifled, of course, it won't be very accurate. You're probably limited to 50, maybe 75 yards with slugs. Get a rifled barrel, however, and you can with a sabot, a sabo, some people say, some say sabot, a saboted bullet. That would mean a smaller than the bore diameter bullet inside of a plastic or nylon sabot or wad that holds the bullet and grips it. So the rifling then grabs the plastic and spins it and you end up having a rifled effect stabilizing that bullet, get longer range and more accuracy. So that really makes the 12 gauge really versatile. Now you could say, well, why not a 16 gauge or a 20 gauge? And of course that's viable too, but they don't have, uh, well, they're just not as big for the bigger animals and or bigger ducks and geese. You know, these days we have to shoot a non-toxic shot, which usually means steel shot, which does not have a lot of specific gravity. The individual pellets are fairly light, so they lose energy quickly. So they're not as effective at longer ranges the way big old lead used to be. You can go with tungsten pellets, which are even more dense than lead, but ooh, they're also way more expensive than lead. So the 12-gauge is more versatile because it can handle larger quantities of steel shot to be more effective for larger waterfowl, for instance. So that would be my ultimate on a versatile cartridge. But now if we're talking rifles, of course, cartridge, we're not talking shot shells, then we're gonna have to figure out what can handle everything. And a lot of people would say 375 H&H because it's been proven on the biggest and the baddest, like Cape Buffalo and charging elephants. It's not the biggest for that, but then again, it's not so big that you wouldn't wanna use it for impala, uh, steenbuck, any of the smaller antelopes, and then white-tailed deer in this country, mule deer, pronghorns, and all the rest of them. A three seventy-five h H&H can shoot bullets as heavy as 300 grains. Generally, that's the top end. Um, And as light as probably 190 or 200, maybe not 250, 270 is a good compromise, but I'll bet you that somebody's made some fairly light ones down there closer to 200. So you can swap out your bullets and get pretty good versatility that way. But as a general balanced round, even with 270 or even 300 grain bullets, it's still not so heavy that you're going to not want to apply it to say a white tailed deer sized animal. And you've got enough energy and diameter and bullet mass and momentum for the bigger stuff so that would probably be ranking right up there for a versatile cartridge then again you can also f- make a pretty good argument for the 30-06 and it's kind of an old war horse it's been around a long time but gosh that thing can be loaded with 100 grain bullets in any weight all the way up to 220 and the usual one in 10 inch twist in your barrels going to stabilize all of those so that makes it extremely versatile. You're not going to get extremely good accuracy out of those short little 100, 110 grain bullets just because they're so tiny and so short. Um, but they're great for plinking and downloading. If you're a hand loader, you can reduce the pressures and such. Get your powder levels down to uh, driving that bullet, say, at 1,500 feet per second. Makes for pretty good smaller game performance out of the 30 out 6 so the loads you use is going to make a big difference in the versatility of any of these cartridges now some folks might argue well why don't you go to say something like a 243 fairly light light recoil really effective on deer pronghorn quite a few people will use it on elk and even moose you use the right bullet put it in the right place it'll do the job most people wouldn't prefer it for big animals like moose but you could claim it's pretty darn versatile because of that and yet it's not so heavy with its bullet that you're going to be putting too big of a hole shall we say in a small game like a rabbit but then again it has high velocity and you would tear up a lot of meat that way so you would again have to hand load to get your velocities down to make it more effective. I think I'm going to go for the versatile cartridge being the 375 H&H, if you want to include dangerous game, uh, but I'll stick with the 30-06 um, for just about everything else, especially in North America. Now, you can make the argument, and I have done it in the past, that the 7 Remy Mag would be a good all-arounder. Um, pretty similar considerations as you would use for the 30 out six. And if you're going with a 30 out six, you know, why not step up to the 300 wind mag, get a little more potential velocity? As long as you're hand loading smaller bullets to lower velocities for the smaller things anyway, you could do it with the 300. And then you've got all the other 300s that you could work with or all the other sevens that you could work with. Now, if you're coming from the perspective of a non hand loader, depending on factory ammunition, Boy, I think now you're solidly in that 30-06 camp, because there are so many different loads for that one. And then we've got to bring up the 308 Winchester, because there's a lot of the big fans of that will say that will come within 100 feet per second of the 30-06, and there are a lot of loads and ammunition for that one, including relatively inexpensive ammunition with a lot of full metal jacket bullets on it for practice and whatnot. So, gosh, yeah, there are. There are a lot of most versatile cartridges out there, and I think each of us has to decide which is our most versatile. But those are kind of my ideas. Thanks for asking that one, Joseph. Now, here's one from Shane. My question, 270-related, is why did Winchester Browning design a new cartridge, the 6.8 Western, and then not make enough rifles to keep up with demand, particularly Winchester rifles? I didn't know that they weren't keeping up with demand, but if You're not finding them, Um, and there is a backlog on these rifles. I would suspect pretty much immediately that it's because of this supply-demand thing from COVID, and it applies to everything from computers and phones to automobiles and all this chip stuff, Uh, people not showing up for work. Things being closed down and all the rest of it, so maybe they got behind that way. I honestly don't know, but that would be my conjecture. I cannot imagine that they wouldn't want to manufacture what they're in business to manufacture and sell. So uh, I would rattle their cage, you know. Honestly, just write uh, Winchester and say, "Hey, man, I want to want to buy a rifle chambered for this new six point eight Western. I think it's pretty cool, but I can't find one." <laughs> and see what they tell you. I would think they would jump through hoops to try to get you one. All right. Good luck on that one, Shane. Here is Lars asking what the cost of a Remington rifle compared to a Bergara. Oh boy. That's kind of a broad question there, Lars. And I am not keeping up with changing gun prices and You've got to ask which Bergara rifle are you talking about? Because they have a lot of them, a lot of variety, and the same with Remington. So, you know, is it a Remington rimfire rifle or a center fire or a big bore or small, uh, a general purpose sporting hunting rifle or a long range rifle? Same with Bergara. They've got some beautiful extreme range rifles all set up for precision shooting, as well as the smaller, lighter ones for hunting. So yeah, I really can't uh, give you an honest answer like that. But Gosh, you should be able to punch in the Bergara rifle model that you want and price on a Google search, and it'll cough up a bunch of different gun sellers online with the prices. Uh, Same for the Remingtons, and that's what I would do. This is from EP, the initials EP. Why don't some eastern states allow modern centerfire bottleneck cartridge rifles for deer honey? (laughs) That is a question we Westerners often ponder. And here's my understanding in a settled, densely populated area, folks got concerned about the potential danger of bullets flying through the air with the greatest of ease and going a long way where they're not wanted. (laughs) Now a good, proper gun safety and performance in the field. Hunters do not shoot when there's not a safe background, get up in a tree and shoot down to the ground. If you miss your deer, you hit the ground. No big deal. Um, Shoot on a hillside if there's an animal in the skyline. You don't know where that bullet's going if you miss, so you don't take skyline shots. You whaley's off the skyline. It just seems to me unusual to expect a bullet to fly an extreme distance without any interruption to cause some sort of a long-range injury. But this is what people were thinking. Gosh, if a two seventy, for instance, can throw a bullet for three miles, oh my gosh, who knows where it's going to end up well, there's probably going to be a hill that'll intercept it or some trees, especially back east in the Midwest. Most people complain that when they hunt in the Midwest, they can't even get an open shot at a deer more than a hundred yards away. So is there really an issue here? I don't know. It doesn't much matter if it's an issue or not because several states have decided they were going to limit cartridges to ones that would not shoot that far. And the simplest example of this is shotgun slug only states. They just decided no rifles at all. We're strictly going to limit folks to shotguns. But now there's quite a bit of evidence suggesting that's probably not as safe as they think it is because the shotgun slug is big and heavy and it resists it resists Deformation, it resists breaking up. It's a big chunk and it skips and ricochets. And there have been some studies that show that they will ricochet a lot farther than a fairly light, fast bullet from a center fire rifle. Say a hundred grain bullet from a 243, for instance. Obviously, this is changing based on the construction of the bullet. An extremely hard bullet will stay together and ricochet more than a frangible bullet more prone to breaking up. But there are some pretty darn good arguments for saying, why not allow a high velocity, smaller caliber, fairly light bullet that would break up if it hits a tree or the ground and doesn't ricochet as much. But basically, that's why some of these eastern and midwestern states won't allow a centerfire bottlenecked cartridge. They just think they go too fast and shoot too far. But that is beginning to change because of these studies that have shown these things, these different effects, and the fact that I just rarely hear of anyone being struck by a projectile launched from an extreme distance that just accidentally landed there. But that's kind of the philosophy. All right, EP, good question. Now, John asks, what do you think about the 225 Winchester for flat shooting? before I answer that, I want to ask you guys, who's ever heard of the 225 Winchester? Who's ever seen one? And who has ever shot one? Send in your comments because I'd sure like to find this one out. I have never seen one that I can remember, and I haven't shot one. What the heck is it? The 225 Winchester is a cartridge that Winchester came out with just about the same time, maybe a year or two earlier than Remington came out with the 22 and it goes about the same velocity with the same bullets. It's a center centerfire. And I think Winchester came out with it because their faster 22 cartridge was the 220 Swift, which is a real screamer. For a long, long time, it was the fastest centerfire cartridge out there. 4,000 feet per second, maybe a little faster with some lighter bullets, but man... The problem with it was, because it was a high volume of powder, it burned out throats fairly quickly if you shot it quickly, repeatedly, and got your barrel really hot. So 220 Swifts are known as barrel burners and people kind of shied away from it. But but it's a heck of a performer. So Winchester thought, well, let's throttle it back a little bit and offer them something else. And he came up with this 225 Winchester. But as I remember, it's a semi-rimmed or rimmed case. The 220 Swift was a semi-rimmed case, but it works well in bold action rifles like the Model 70. The 225, I can't remember what they used for their parent cartridge on that one. But the upshot is it's roughly the same powder volume as the 22250 Remington. Um, not quite as an efficient shape as I recall, and as a result it sort of languished while the 22250 really took off. And you need to remember that the 22250 already had a pretty darn good following because it was a wildcat for many, many years going way back to the 1930s. And they were even building rifles Factory rifles chambered for it before anyone was chambering ammunition. The 022 was still a wildcat. It wasn't even Sammy specked and Browning was building chambering rifles for it. So people already knew about the 022 and I think they had in mind, if one ever comes out in a factory rifle with factory ammo, I'm going to buy it. So that certainly didn't help the 225 Winchester. Now, if you found an old Model 70 in 225 Winchester, and you're a hand loader, I wouldn't shy away from it. I think you can do pretty darn good, especially with modern powders and bullets. It'll perform better than ever. I think you'd be within probably a hundred feet per second of the twenty-two two-fifty Remington. You might even uh, might even match it, and you might pick that rifle up for. Uh, a song and a dance <laughs> because who, who wants to buy a 225? You probably can't find any ammo for it. I'm sure Winchester cranks a little bit out every now and then to keep people supplied. But given the ammo situation these days, it might be a long time until anyone loads up some more factory loads for 225 Winchester. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up a fairly obscure cartridge there, John. Now, this is CMDR, and he asks, what are your thoughts on the straight-pull bolt-action Savage Impulse Rifle? Good one. I have not seen this particular rifle, but I saw what I'm pretty sure they took it from, a European-designed rifle. And Heim was uh, either making and or making and selling those, but they had a Heim rifle that was that same straight-pull with the uh, ball bearings around near the head of the bolt body. That was their lockup. So instead of using the protruding lugs that turn in to lock the bolt and the cartridge into the battery, they use these ball bearings, which means you've got a straight pull. You pull back, you shove forward, and the ball bearings pop into a ring inside of the uh, receiver ring, and that was, that is what locks it. Now, I don't know if it's just a complete ring around the rosie or if it's individual pockets for them. I think it's the ring, but I could be wrong. The effect, however, is there's a, a camming device inside of the bolt body that pushes those ball bearings out, and the back thrust of the cartridge explosion would only increase that pressure and keep it locked tightly into position. Well-proven design, and what I shot a rifle of that make from Heim a couple of years ago. And I think, I think I did a video on it. I'd have to check. It might be on RSO TV, Uh, but it was quite accurate and quite fast and quite strong. I think it's a very well built and well-designed little option. So if you are thinking about taking a look at it, I certainly wouldn't shy away. I would give it a close look. Uh, Like I say, I haven't tried the Savage version yet, but I imagine it's pretty much the same thing. So it would be a, a kind of a fun one, not have to lift that bolt, pull it back, and then close it again. You just come straight pull. It's very quick. All right, here's a question from Richard and asks, I'm a seasoned deer hunter with several guns, and I'm looking at a new one, the Tika in 308 Winchester. What's your opinion? Thanks. Oh, I, you know, I hear about this and get a, what's your opinion on the Tika quite a bit, um, but I've got a I've got to honestly tell you guys, I have not worked with one. I've seen a few, uh, but I've never taken one hunting. I've taken some Saco's hunting and Saco Tico, same uh, company, makes those. Uh, They're fairly similar, but not exactly the same. Bolt action rifle. I'm not sure if it's a three lug action or a two. I think it's three. So you've got a fairly short bolt lift. Um, Other than that, you know, it's pretty standard, except I think they must be going to extreme lengths for precision tolerances because most people who tell me about their Tikas absolutely love them, and they just claim they're accurate right out of the box, sub minute of angle, and they have never have any issues with them. So this is not my opinion so much as the opinion of others told to me. But boy, from what I've heard, I think it is a probably a pretty darn good, solid, and effective rifle action. Um, I think, I remember, they come in a variety of stock configurations, probably some thumb holes, sporter stocks, uh, more of a varmint or heavyweight target stock, um, and also synthetic as well as wood. I think they've got a big collection of them. So definitely take a look. I don't I, I think you're probably going to like it. If everyone else who's been talking to me about them is right, they must be one heck of a rifle. I've got to lay hands on one here pretty quick and uh, see what I can find out for myself. And, of course, the three oh eight Winchester... Is always a Goldilocks cartridge. I, I like to tease folks who really love it because I've always thought it's just kind of a whole hum middle middle-of-the-road cartridge. Yeah, 308 Winchester, why not go to a 260 Remington or step up to, uh, say, a 30 out 6 or even one of the short 300 Magnums? I don't know. But, but the arguments in favor of the 308 are good, solid arguments. Everyone makes it. The ammunition is abundant, and there's so much competition, you can get some fairly inexpensive ammunition with every imaginable choice in bullets for covering every kind of hunting you could want to do. Uh, They'll pretty much perform within 50 to 100 feet per second of the .30-06, but you have it in a short action. So that's why I call it the Goldilocks cartridge. just kind of not too hot, not too cold, not too fast, not too slow, not too much recoil, not too little power and it's right in the middle so I don't think you can go wrong I'd still get a seven millimeter 08 instead (laughs) but that's me that looks like our questions for today guys um hey I really appreciate it I want to point something out here on the table you can see these are some old hand-loading manuals that I still have and they go pretty far back And I just thought I might mention, if you are at a, oh, say a used bookstore at a garage sale or something, and you see these hand-loading manuals from the 80s and the 70s, and even back into the 60s, pick them up because they're pretty interesting. It's just fun to see how things have changed and how they've stayed the same. You know, different powders, new powders. But the cartridges, what we used to have to load for back in those days versus now, there were a lot fewer cartridges. And there are a lot of cartridges that were pretty commonly loaded for back in the 60s and 70s that you rarely see these days. It's just kind of a fun little historical tour. So keep your eye open for some of the old hand-loading manuals. You can probably pick them up for a song, and they are entertaining. Hey, this is Ron Spomer. I want to thank you all for sending in your questions and uh, correcting a few things. It always helps. We're all in this game together and we're trying to do it right. Until next time on Honest and Shoot Straight.
0: Like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.